If you haven't heard the CSIS podcast series, Mexico Matters, you should really check it out. It features leading voices from both sides of the border to discuss how developments in Mexico impact the United States. The newest episode features a conversation with former CIA director, General David Petraeus, who has a lot to say about how current events in Mexico are affecting North American integration and about the competitive profile of the United States as it competes with China. Mexico Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or directly on the CSIS website. Give it a listen. I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're the the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Well, welcome to this week's episode of The Trade Guys. It's an unusual one because for the first time since March of 2020, Bill Reinch and I are in the same room, but we also have a live audience today. And uh, we're privileged to be joined by a number of university students or recent graduates who are part of the American Committee on Foreign Relations. We're going to talk about one thing that's from the news this week, and then you'll hear student voices, they'll introduce themselves, but we'll handle the questions that the students were most curious to talk with us about. Bill, why don't you talk about Secretary Blinken's comments and uh, what you thought they meant? Yes, happy to do that. Secretary Blinken gave, I think, what was an important speech the other day. I'm not sure he broke a lot of new ground, but he reaffirmed a couple of core principles. And the important one for trade is that this administration is interesting in that it believes that in order to have an effective trade policy, you need to basically take care of business at home first. A lot of this is being done in the context of meeting the challenge that China presents and a number of officials, uh, the president himself, but Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and and now Secretary Blinken, have all made the same point, which is, in in so many words, if you're in a race, you know, there's only two ways to win. One is to run faster, and the other is to trip the other guy. And implicitly, the Trump administration focused on trying to trip the other guy. Where Biden is really focused, and, and Secretary Blinken made this clear, is how do we run faster? What do we need to do in the United States to strengthen our economy and to make us more competitive? Because that will be the secret to successful trade policy going forward. I did want to get your thoughts, Bill, on one comment that Blinken made specifically, which is there's a quote. It says, for too long, we thought we could trade more with the world while investing less here at home. That didn't work out for our economy for our workers and our communities. The reason I point to that is it strikes me as a misapprehension of why companies invest abroad, why why investment flows outside the United States. And it it turns out that mostly it's a product of the business model and the business goals that create foreign affiliates or that that incent companies to invest outside the United States, but they still have large operations within the United States. So if you think of, for instance, FedEx Express, great company, and they invest not only in airplanes, but in distribution centers. But you've got to have a distribution center on both the sending end and the receiving end of that airplane flight if you want to be in the international package delivery service. So great distribution center, big investment in Memphis, Tennessee, but also they're invested all over the world in similar distribution centers, not to that scale, of course, but it's essential to their business model that they have foreign investment. 
and that foreign investment, importantly, is complementary to what they do here. Is the secretary just emphasizing something else? No, he's just wrong. Okay, well, that's all right, too. That's what we're here for. Well, I was trying to be positive in the first part, but the one statistic that I've always remembered is 96% of the world's consumers are outside the United States. If our economy is going to grow, uh, we have to trade. Look at the most recent census data. We are a mature, slow-growth economy. If you're interested in more rapid growth, then trading is essential. And lots of companies, small and large, have recognized that and have begun to move overseas. Uh, so the idea or the implication that, that trade has not been a benefit, I think, is is simply wrong. It's not only a benefit, but it's a necessity. If we want to grow, if you want to stagnate, then you know, then, then don't bother. Um, I think the other problem that, that particular phrasing suggests is something that I've ranted about in the column that I, that I write every week, which is that this administration has a tendency to conflate creation of benefit and distribution of benefit when they're different. To me, trade agreements create, or trade, not just trade agreements, trade creates benefits. It creates more economic activity. People sell stuff, they make money. And hopefully they invest the money and build more infrastructure, of, of more factories, make more products, and sell more. That's called growth. That's a good thing. Trade agreements do not by themselves distribute the benefits. You know, what the company does with the money it makes is up to the company. And it can be up to government policy. It can be up to government tax policy, as Scott mentioned, or regulatory policy, how we tell corporations what they're supposed to do, or it can be a matter of, uh, you know, if you're talking about how do we make sure, which is a theme of the Biden administration, how do we make sure workers are getting their fair share of the benefits of trade, which is an important question. And I agree with the Biden people that they haven't uh, historically, but it's very hard to, to demonstrate inside a trade agreement. How do you do that? How you do it is other elements of government policy. Adjustment policy, adjustment assistance, tax policy, education policy, working tra worker training. But they all have this assumption that we can't negotiate trade agreements unless they help workers. And um, they point to the USMCA agreement, um, which is very much focused on enforcement of labor standards in Mexico, uh, which is a good thing. And they've had some success on that. But the missing piece here, of course, is if you want to, if you want to replicate that elsewhere, which they do, you have to have a negotiation. And, and we're not negotiating anything right now. Everything is in stasis. In any case, yeah, if I had, a, if I had an elevator ride with Secretary Blinken, what I'd tell him is that, uh, that globally engaged American companies do 75% of the private R&D in the country. And that those investments outside the United States are complementary, not competitive. In other words, you don't invest either in the United States or outside. And the, the fact is you want more American firms engaged in the world for the very reason Bill said, that's where the people are. So in any case, that's the only thing we wanted to talk about. We want to hear from you and your questions were terrific. And the first one made us do some research. So if you, whoever asked the question about Scot Scottish independence, that would be a good place to start. Yes, we're actually prepared for that one. My name's Morgan, I'm from the Boise Committee. If Scotland were to leave the UK, what would be the largest trade problem it would raise between the two countries? I titled my column this week, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Uh, and for those of you that are millennials, which appears to be all of you, you may not know what that's a reference to. It's a Neil Sedaka song from the 60s. Anyway, the biggest question mark is whether Scotland would then seek to basically rejoin the EU 
And that then determines a lot of other things if they do. First, it would determine their future trade policy because in the EU, trade policy is generally a, a commission issue and not a national issue. But what it would raise, and I think this is the biggest problem, and, and as we're seeing with Ireland, a nearly insoluble problem, is the question of the land border. The EU has been adamant that products coming into the European Union have to meet European standards. And the Northern Ireland problem has been, so far, very difficult to resolve as a consequence of, of Brexit, because you've got a land border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which has been relatively seamless for uh, ever since the Good Friday Agreement of 20-plus years ago, and is an integral part to a, a relatively fragile peace there. If Scotland became independent and then joined the EU, they'd have to do the same thing in a border with what would then be England, basically. And that means uh, border control. That means, you know, stopping people going back and forth. It means people smuggling things across the border that don't meet European standards, particularly agriculture standards, which is what they're most worried about. Uh, we think that would be the, uh, the biggest obstacle and the most difficult one to solve, but not the only one. There are fishing rights issues. That was a big issue when uh, the UK left the EU. There would probably be an oil rights argument for oil platforms in the North Sea. And of course, uh, for some people, the biggest issue would be scotch whiskey, which is 25% now of the UK's food and drink export, which is a big number. So if Scotland became independent, what the first thing that would happen is all that all those exports would go on Scotland's trade surplus and not on the UK's. And so the, the data would look different. But this also happens to be a sector where tariffs are very high and where it's the first place people look when they want to retaliate. Look at the Boeing Airbus case where that was they, the Scotch industry, if that's the right word, was a primary victim. So uh, there's a lot of things to sort out. If they don't join the EU, then they are on the same path that the UK is on right now, having to negotiate all those trade agreements that they're no longer a part of. And you'd think, well, they just have to, you know, change the name and everything else fine. And it, it, in trade, it's never that simple, you know, because a lot of those agreements are decades old. And you go back, say, to Australia and say, we want to, you know, renegotiate the agreement. And they say, well, you know, that, that was then, this is now. We want, we want to change things. It takes a lot of time. There will be a lot of uncertainty. What happens when there's uncertainty is people hold on to their money, which means investment declines. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a classic story. We have a global economy. There are a lot of entanglements. And if you decide to disentangle one set, you create a whole bunch of grumpy people and a whole bunch of uncertainty. But the land border is the biggest issue. Scott, what have I forgotten? This is far more complicated than it's being presented as. I note that the uh, Kingdom of Scotland joined to form Great Britain in 1707, all right? So 10 generations ago, the land border was essentially erased. And what's happened is, is that, that commerce has been conducted by people basically in the same territory. I'm a reader of uh, Friedrich Hayek. Uh, he's a wonderful, he's an Austrian economist, Nobel Prize winner. But he talks about spontaneous order. And spontaneous order gets created every day by people making voluntary exchanges for mutual benefit. And that's what we call trade. All right? we, call it tra we call it international trade when it goes across an international border. But trade happens every day. Commercial activity happens every day. And those kinds of agreements are deep and, and difficult to unpack. And people have grown accustomed to it. And all that gets pulled apart 
when you put a border in between. So this is a, I, I think, I think a, there's a non-zero chance of failure here just because, I mean, I'm not sure that everyone agrees that the, where the 1707 border was is where the 2021 border belongs. All right, I know when Quebec separatism was a big thing in the 90s, there was a huge debate on, on what constituted Quebec. Okay, and, and so these are, these are hard issues. So I, I'd recommend one piece of reading because I think this is gonna keep happening in your lifetimes. And that's a book by Martin Geary. He wrote it in 2014. It's called The Revolt of the Public. It is one of the more prescient books I've read. It was in response to the Arab Spring, but foresaw Brexit, they foresaw the sort of the, the populist revolt in the United States that was embodied in Donald Trump. It's a fascinating book. 2014, that's way before uh, the orange man came down the escalator. All right, so this is going on and Guri's perspective is going on globally. Another question, some other victim. My name is Jonna, I'm with the Santa Barbara Committee, and I know we touched uh, briefly on it on a previous episode, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the EU's new proposal on carbon, carbon border taxes and whether you think that it'll help global cooperation or if it's more likely that it'll spark conflict with the EU's major, major trading partners, the U.S. being one of them? We're divided on that here at CSIS. Actually, we have a project that is looking at precisely that issue. And my environmental colleagues, I think their answer, I, I shouldn't speak for them because they're not here, but I think their answer would be that it's likely to be divisive. It's likely to be regarded as a protectionist effort that is not really environmentally oriented. It's designed to protect particular European industries from imports and that there will be a lot of litigation both in Europe, uh, in third countries, uh, and at the WTO, and that it has all kinds of WTO problems. I'm on the other side. I'm actually, I, I'm optimistic about it. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if Scott and I would agree on this, but I think that, that I mean, we, we had a, a round table on this, a private one with a bunch of, of European think tank people primarily. And in the end, there was sort of a divide. Most people thought it would be this kind of death spiral where, you know, countries would be retaliating against each other and litigating and it would just be a, a giant mess. I was in the, uh, in the group that thought there was a potential for sort of a, uh, a virtuous spiral, if you will, in the sense that the Europeans do it. And then what's going to happen here is that our companies will say, well, we're being disadvantaged. We're going to have to pay. Our products are going to become more expensive because they're not necessarily going to be waived by, under the European rules. I mean, that remains to be seen, but let's play that scenario out. And, you know, we ought to do the same thing, you know, get even. And that's not a very pure motive. But the result of that is that we do the same thing. And the result of that is that you, then now you've got more border adjustment measures and you probably have more climate mitigation going on. And the purists would say, well, but it's done for base trade motivations. And I guess my response is, well, maybe so, but you've still got something happened that might actually be good. And if, you know, if they do it and we do it and the Chinese do it and they're already talking about that, I think you're going to find more and more countries saying, well, we need to climb aboard that particular train. The flaw in that argument or the way to avoid the death spiral is, I think, you have to have a commonly agreed upon uh, carbon pricing mechanism. I agree that some transparency and consistency in carbon pricing would be actually a big help to any government who's trying to figure out what to do 
about reducing carbon emissions. So I think that's a good thing because it's transparent. Uh, so I think that's worth working on. But let me make a couple observations. First, whether this is unfair or not, whether it is protective of a specific industry group or done for purest of reasons, it is trade restricting. Trade restricting measures reduce living standards. Trade liberalizing measures increase living standards. So guess what? You like the Green New Deal? Expect lower living standards and more government control because those are features of that program. I say that because for four years, a lot of people in this town poked it at the Trump administration for raising tariffs for its consumer welfare harm, which was true. But this is just as harmful to consumer welfare, even if it's done for a different reason. That's point one. Point two is how much carbon leakage, which is what these border adjustment measures are supposed to do. They're supposed to stop so-called carbon leakage. How much carbon leakage is there really? I don't know the answer to that question. I've not heard it raised in a debate whether pro or con of the border adjustment measures. All right, and so let's find that out. And since we're going to take a trade restrictive measure that, it, that knowingly reduces consumer welfare, reduces voter welfare, how big a problem is this? And, and does this solve the problem relatively efficiently? We ought to be able to know that. I would note that a United Nations group, UNCTAD, just published a report on the European proposal. And they made a very interesting comment, which is the only practical experience we have on these border adjustment measures is in the California electricity sector. So Santa Barbara, okay, over to you, okay? Actually, because California imports electric power and they have a cap and trade system in their electrical power programs, they make contracts to import essentially low carbon power from other states. And what the analysis of that program has shown is it, it's sort of a trade diversion. It's, a, it's an electricity diversion scheme. So California buys power, for instance, from Nevada. Nevada has hydropower, which is zero carbon. If you don't count the building of the dam, it's zero carbon. And uh, they also have some generated by fossil fuels. Well, Nevada will divert uh, hydropower to California, but still make just as much electricity with the, uh, with the normal hydrocarbons. And so the, the conclusion was California's system while it's really the only one way where we have practical experience, really didn't, didn't do much for carbon leakage. So I think the more interesting question is, before we rush headlong in this, how big is the problem? And is this a particularly efficient or neutral or transparent way to solve it? Let's move on. Another question? Hey, Trade Guys. I'm Eli from the Des Moines Committee, and I actually have a question that we didn't submit, so I hope that's all right with you. <laughs> My question relates to an article I read recently on the trade talks between India and Australia. An Australian official was quoted as saying, the answer to almost every question about China is India. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that assertion and the potential of India as a more democratic uh, substitute for China in world trade. I hadn't heard the comment. It's a very interesting one. India has much better demographics than China. It will soon become the largest nation in the world. It is a peaceful, multi-party, multi-ethnic democracy. There aren't a lot of those in the world. So India does a lot of things that are admirable. And in many ways, a great partner given the size and potential wealth of India. In fact, there are more millennials in India than there are people in the United States. And if you're in the marketing biz, you'd soon learn that Indian millennials want exactly the same thing that American millennials want, which is experiences. Okay, so, you know, if you're in the business of satisfying millennial demands, you want to be in India <laughs> and the United States. But 
Having said that, India has, has always seen itself as autonomous from the world when it comes to trade policy. They've, they've gone their own way consistently. They are always the, the last to move on an issue. They're famous in the multilateral system. Now keep in mind, India was a, was a founding member of the GATT. They were at the Havana Conference in 1947, and they were one of the original signatories, as was Cuba, by the way, but <laughs> life changes. But having said that, you know, India is always the last to be satisfied. They, they are always willing to shoot their hostages. It is, they're tough to deal with on any issue. And so while I'm totally with the Australian minister on the comment that the future with India looks a lot more collaborative than a future with China, particularly if you're Australia, and, and the, those are relative neighbors for you. But uh, what I will also say, India's record as a cooperator in, in international rulemaking or international trade agreements is, is more theory than reality. I would second the latter comment and, and skip all the good stuff in the beginning. We had a, a closed door session here a couple of years ago with a senior WTO official who I thought summed it up uh, very well. and said that they're really good at hostage taking. And their basic attitude is, if we can't get what we want, we'll make sure that nobody else gets anything that they want. And I think they've been a negative force in the WTO since, well, since it began in 1994. You know, they have locked progress on, on the Doha round, and they are uh, equally uh, opposed to progress on plurilateral negotiations and sort of coalitions of the willing, including the one that's going on right now on, on e-commerce. Because they, you know, they simultaneously want to insist that the only thing that WTO should do is something that includes everybody, all 164 members. But then when you get there, they're the one that blocks the consensus. And the result is where we are now with the WTO, which is gridlock. They periodically sound like they are prepared to make some rather significant changes in their economic policy. And the previous government did. It's fine to say they, they're the answer because they're sort of the, the anti-China in many respects, and uh, Scott labeled them, but uh, they're not nearly uh, in a position really to play that role. It's, that's a potential, I think, and not a reality. One of the real differences is at least China in 1995, 2000, was prepared to reform. China's bound rates when they joined the WTO are far lower for either industrial goods or agricultural goods than India's have ever been. Okay, so they're, more, they're much more open market as, as large markets go, much more open market than most developing countries, and they use the WTO accession process to conduct massive internal reform in their economy, and they, they got the benefits of it. India's never done that, so it's a problem nobody really has the answer. As a negotiator, I would rather, uh, painful though they Chinese both are, are, I'd rather negotiate with the Chinese. Comfortable, I think, with win-win outcomes. As long as they get what they want, they're okay if you get what you want too. I think with India, and they have a very, the Chinese always go into any talks with a very, very clear view of what their objectives are. And I think with the Indians, it's never quite that clear. Hi, I'm Zara from the Louisville Committee. I wanted to build off the comment that you mentioned about a significant amount of millennials in India. Most of the ACFR young leaders uh, here today are actually Gen Z, and a lot of marketing research points to the fact that Gen Z cares uh, much more about quality and price versus millennials, as you mentioned, uh, focusing more on experience. So I'm curious how you think that will impact the international trade arena here in the, f in the future, specifically with the uh, competitive price 
being important to this generation? Fascinating question. You made the point. You can go ahead. That is a terrific question. And one of the benefits of freer trade to everyone is you have a greater array of, of options at, at various price points for almost any good or service. I mean, this is, now this goes back to a point Adam Smith made in, in the Wealth of Nations in 1776, which is specialization uh, expands to the size of the consumer market. And because the world is a consumer market these days, if your opportunity to trade in goods or services is relatively free, you have much greater access. So I think that is, that's a key argument that is a, a genuine consumer benefit for trade that almost never gets reflected in the political debate. The people who show up in Washington are organized interests. They tend to be the producers, not the consumers. And so one opportunity for Gen Z and, and the, their interest in price and quality and having selection is, is to make a better consumer argument for these kinds of things. Because it ultimately is the reason, the reason for trade. Two great benefits for free exchange. The first one is this ability to get all kinds of stuff at a range of quality and value and, and increase your selection, which enhances the living standard. The other thing is it's where, in, it's where invention comes from. There's a, there's a prominent phrase in the English language, a meeting of the minds. And when you run into people in that process of exchange who are different, who have different needs and wants and different services to offer and those kinds of things, that's where actually innovation really happens. Uh, I, I bring up innovation because it's so important to our success as a country, and we know almost nothing about how to get it. But one of the things I'm convinced of is that it happens, it's a bottom-up grassroots process. It happens mostly by people who are engaged with other people. Right? And so that's, for me, the opportunity. The Gen Z opportunity is to drive innovation from the ground level. Okay, and find out how to get better price, how to get better service, how to do things that make the generational leap in your satisfaction of the goods and services you buy. That's really what, that's why we engage in commerce. Next question. Hi, I'm Skylar. I'm from the Casper Wyoming Committee on Foreign Relations, and I was interested in hearing your perspectives on in this continuation of the pandemic and perhaps in the aftermath of the pandemic, if we ever get there. Will the rest of the world do you think retreat into more nationalist trade policies, or do you think this will bring us closer together into a more globalist economy? Let me start by saying panic is a really bad look. And there was a lot of panic in March of last year. And but understandable, look, there are some things that happen. Tunnel vision happens uh, because you focus on the challenge that, that you're faced with. Uh, you have, there's a thing called immediacy bias, where you're just dealing with the information in front of you. Singapore's answer, by the way, to the immediacy bias is they're no longer reporting confirmed cases. Singapore is a city-state of 5.5 million people, not really comparable to the United States. But they, they just made a decision and said, look, we're making ourselves crazy by reporting new cases. So when our hospitals are crowded, we'll let you know. Until then, go worry about something else. And now I, I really admire that response. It's a very difficult one to do. And you, if you're an authoritarian system like Singapore, it's easier for you to do than it is a, an electoral system or a democracy like ours. Having said that, that's the reflection of what happens to human beings in these circumstances. So with that point made, and that we all panicked and shouldn't have and probably ought to get over it. I think that there were habits of cooperation in place for central bankers and, tr and, uh, and treasury ministries 
finance ministries that served the world well. They prevented a collapse in liquidity, which could have made the downturn that did happen a lot worse. Now, trade ministers and trade policy people tend to have the habit of negotiation, of bargaining. And that didn't serve well in the pandemic. In fact, the shock of, of supply outages led to a, sort of a me first attitude by everyone. This is not just the United States. It's not just Western world. Europe, which, was, which I thought was a single market, put national uh, export restrictions on certain key uh, medical products. All right, so there was a lot to unpack. The fact is nobody makes everything. In fact, almost no one makes all the things they need. Even a big economy like the United States has got a lot of domestic production. A lot of what happened is, is going to turn out to be a blip and economies will, will recover their, I mean, the recovery is exposing weak links and, and log jams, particularly at ports. I think for the most part, we work through a lot of that. I think there will be some lasting changes though that are important. I think one of the big ones, and it's not driven solely by the pandemic, but also by our relationship with China is the growing intersection of security issues and trade issues as a, as a single thing. Uh, what the pandemic convinced us was, you know, there's certain stuff we don't want to run out of in the middle of a crisis. And the security argument is, you know, you don't want to run out of uh, PPE. You don't want to run out of relevant drugs. Uh, you don't want to run out of semiconductors, you know, get a little, one step away from the medical sector. And I think there's certainly here in Washington a, um, a new appreciation of how these, the security issues and trade issues uh, interact. And I don't think that's going to change. I, don't, I think you're going to find more and more trade actions being taken, certainly in this administration, uh, in the name of, of developing secure supply chains. The way we've put it is that, you know, if you're a supply chain manager trying to construct, you know, where to get stuff, parts and components, normally you look at price, quality, and delivery. You want the lowest price, the highest quality, and the best delivery schedule you can get. And what we've learned from the pandemic is you need, there's a fourth factor, and that's uh, resiliency. You want to have plan B and plan C so that when plan A tanks for any number of reasons, you don't run out. You can, there's something else you can do. That's going to be a permanent fixture. My complaint about the administration is that, that they are happy to sort of say that, but they don't want to admit that there's a cost to it. And the cost is what Scott described earlier. It's, it's more expensive. First of all, to make a change is more expensive. Uh, it takes a long time. The idea that you can, you know, if right now, you know, you, you want to dispose of your Chinese suppliers for various reasons. The idea that you can, you know, switch this one off and start a new relationship with somebody else over here a week later is just ridiculous. First of all, you've got contractual obligations. And second of all, you've got a whole pile of certification, testing, and satisfaction issues. When we, we did a study of this with USMCA and we had a car company tell us that it takes them seven years to cer certify a new supplier. These things don't change quickly. I think my criticism of the administration has been they want to have their cake and eat it too. They say we can do all this stuff and it's not going to cost more. It's not going to take longer and everything will be fine. And the answer is it won't be fine uh, and it will cost more. And it's probably better to be honest about that up front because uh, it's, it's a fair point that, you know, it's worth paying more in order to get the security. Uh, but we ought not to be, you know, dependent, pretending that that doesn't happen. There's some other things that will change. I, I think uh, travel will change. Business travel will change in, in some 
significant ways long term. I, tourism comes back. I mean, the Grand Canyon is not going away, and people are always going to want to be there and go see it. Uh, I think business travel, you're going to see probably uh, a sea change. I mean, I know people who've, you know, who've gone to Japan for a meeting and then come back, in one case, the same day. And, you know, businesses have realized, you know, uh, with Zoom, you know, maybe it's only 80% is good. But if you think about the airfare and the business class airfare, and if you think about the hotel, and if you think about all the other expenses, and you think about the time that's consumed, and all the hassle that goes along with airports, particularly these days, 80% is pretty good. And I don't think you're going to see uh, a recovery in, in business travel to the same extent that you're seeing in, in recreational travel. And that's enormously important for airlines because that's where they make most of their money on business travel, which is why you're probably going to see rates for, for uh, normal, regular tourist travel going up because they're going to have to make their money somewhere. It's Morgan from the Boise Committee again. I had a question about human rights and trade. How would adding a human rights assessment clause to future free trade agreements affect the outcome of the agreement and the clarity on human rights abuses in countries regarding labor regulations? What we've learned, uh, and particularly this administration has touted in USMCA, is there's sort of a difference between aspirational clauses and enforceable clauses. You know, it's one thing for countries to say, we're not going to do bad things, or we promise not to do bad things, or we promise to do these good things. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. It usually takes a while to figure that out. That's not the same as, as making a commitment that is subject to a dispute resolution process and enforcement process that, uh, that allows the other party to the agreement, namely us, uh, to bring a complaint when the other side doesn't, uh, does something that doesn't respect human rights or, or labor rights. The USMCA is sort of an example of trying to build that in on labor. And um, I think you can make the case at least, uh, it's early, but you can make the case it's sort of working. You know, we brought a couple cases. Uh, they were settled in ways that are sort of favorable. You know, you can argue about how favorable they were, but I, I think they're generally being regarded by the administration as kind of a victory. So they can make agreement, if, uh, they can make a difference uh, if you draft them properly. That's it. I mean, where I've seen it work is where you have a clear objective, where you're being really clear about what you're trying to do, and you have a creative negotiator who is able to work with the, their counterparty and craft a neutral, enforceable rule that, that, binds, that binds an activity uh, to, to within the agreement that delivers on that objective you said. So clarity of what you want. Human rights is a pretty general topic. All right, look, one, one human right that trade agreements do great on is the, the right to basically the fruits of your labor, okay? Because you, you have a commercial activity that, is, that is, is operates under the principle of non-discrimination and least trade restrictive, which is good for the buyer and the seller, and, and their, their natural right, essentially the rights of property. So there are a lot of human rights already embedded in these, but it's the creativity, it's the specificity of what you're trying to accomplish and the creativity of the negotiator. A friend of the trade guys and, friend, and a co-teacher with Bill, uh, Susan Schwab, was deputy USTR and USTR in the Bush uh, 43 administration. Look at what happened to environmental agreement enforcement in those trade agreements. What, what Ambassador Schwab figured out, her team figured this out, is that there were many... There were many uh, countries which had signed on to environmental agreements without enforcement mechanisms. The classic was CITES, the, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, 
which was a very high-minded and important treaty for endangered species that had no way to enforce it. And what the, the negotiating teams did was they basically said, hey, if, there are, if there's an environmental agreement that both parties have signed, those treaties can be enforced using the dispute settlement mechanism of the free trade agreement. Because the countries essentially already signed CITES. They'd signed an agreement with the United States on dispute settlement, and they just folded them in. So labor, uh, so environmental commitments went from hortatory to enforceable. And, and, it, was, and it, was, it was really artful, okay? But that's where the creativity, they were very clear about what they wanted. They wanted people to enforce their own laws. But also, they, they were really creative negotiators involved. And that's the, that's the magic where you can you make about whatever you want happen with enough, uh, with enough sort of specificity and creativity. Well, my name is Joshua Boyle. I'm from the Tulsa Committee. And uh, my question was, and you've actually kind of commented on this on an, in an episode with uh, Judd Devermont almost two years ago to the day. But my question was, uh, since the trading officially began for the Africa continental free trade area at the first of this year, what would you say has been... Is there any meaningful progress towards the full implementation of this agreement? And then what are the major barriers to this? Um, and if there was more of a hypothetical, if there was more full implementation of this agreement, what would you say are the impacts or benefits it might have for, for the continent as a whole, but perhaps specifically uh, US, closer US partners like Kenya? I think the short answer is it's, a little too, it's probably too soon to tell. Not everybody is ratified. In fact, most have not, as I recall. I mean, everybody but one, everybody but Eritrea has signed. But I think the ratification uh, scale is, is uh, uh, slow, and I think not every issue has been settled. I mean, there's uh, ongoing negotiations, I think, on the digital uh, issue in particular. So, so there's some important elements that are missing, and I don't think there's a lot of data yet about how much difference it's made. Uh, it's, I think, has enormous potential, uh, but it's going to depend on the willingness of countries uh, in the region to, in the continent, to tear down internal barriers that prevent uh, uh, intracontinental trade. Uh, and, it, and that's really what it's designed to do. It's not entirely clear to me quite yet uh, the extent to which uh, that's going to happen. Uh, it's sort of way too early, but I think the potential is significant. Hi, um, my name is Bank Stamp, and I'm with the Birmingham Committee. And I was just curious um, what you two think, uh, in your best expert opinion, would be the best mechanism uh, for a current or future presidential administration to do in order to galvanize American public support on smart trade policy in regions previously mentioned, such as in Africa or you know, in China or India? Well, look, I think the trade message needs optimism. For me, the person who delivers it best is unfortunately retiring from the Congress. It was former chairman and now ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee, Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas. What Congressman Brady and former Chairman Brady had managed to encapsulate is a positive, affirming message about trade. Trade gets a very bad rap because of concentrated job losses, which happen because of technological change and lots of other reasons as well as trade. But, but trade per se, is a voluntary exchange for mutual benefit. And it, it, is, it is a part of life and one that has a life affirming and, and uh, a very positive focus. You know, we are a great country full of great people. We have more entrepreneurs than anybody, uh, you're not even on a per capita basis. American invention 
is dynamic and, and present throughout the economy. And there's no reason that can't find a broader market. I think we do a terrible job of messaging. And trade people are the worst because all they want to do is talk about the problems. They start with, a, if you start with a problem, you never get anywhere in terms of the overall messaging. Start with the benefit. The benefit is better lives. Okay, and so Congressman Brady talks about, buy America is fine, I want to sell America. I blame you, you guys. I'm going to throw the blame back on you all. If you look at poll data, the American people have surprisingly positive views about trade, and they've been consistent over the years. You might not believe this, but actually Democrats are more pro-trade than Republicans are right now by a significant margin. It's up in the 70% uh, area. The problem is that not that people are, even the trade is that controversial or the people are negative about trade. The problem is when you ask a different question, which is, <clears throat> what are the three biggest problems the country has? Uh, and trade is number eight. It used to be number seven. Uh, it's now been passed by climate change, which also make you feel bad because climate change is now number seven. Uh, the big three for 20 years have been terrorism, the economy, and health. Uh, and they rotate. The same one is not always number one, but those have been the big three for years. So what happens is that when people vote and when people interact politically, they're thinking about the big three. They don't vote on a congressman's trade policy. There are probably half a dozen districts in Ohio and Western Pennsylvania, some of which Scott and I both know very well, where that's not true and where people do vote on trade. But overall, people think about other things. It is not a dispositive factor. Uh, and until that changes, uh, I don't think much is going to change in the public debate. I hate to end on a down note. Say something positive, Scott. That problem is a solution in and of itself because it, it says there's room on the playing field to make it a positive issue. And all of you have grown up with, your, with phones that connect you to the world. You are the most global generation ever, all right? And you see its benefits. You know its benefits. We know the younger and more urban you are, the more you support trade. And just let that voice come out because people, the, the rest of the, the communication is happening on other, other issues. So it's an opportunity to stake out the terrain. When I was uh, teaching this stuff, I teach this stuff at the University of Maryland one year. One year we actually had the guy as a speaker who did the poll that I just referred to. And somebody asked him, and, and he broke it down by age groups. Um, and the people that are least pro-trade are, ironically, are people that are our age. And the people that are most pro-trade are people that are your age. Uh, which were, happened to be the students at the time. And uh, one of them asked, why is that so? And the pollster turned it back on the class and said, why do you think it's so? And immediately, three or four of them did this. This is why it is so, because you are connected to the world. And when I was your age, we weren't. Completely different. I was a foreign exchange student uh, in my junior year in high school, and I called home once in 11 months. That's how expensive long distance. Uh, Where were you internet, a student? Uh, South Africa. Uh, but, uh, but it was 1970, 71. And uh, that time it was $2 a minute in $1970, back when we were on the gold standard. $35 was an ounce of gold then, okay? So, you know, th that's how much things have changed in my lifetime. That's the opportunity that you have in front of you. Uh, and uh, so I, I see that as all upside. That's a good way to end. Well done. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here.
to our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.